Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast uh, with me, Nick Shapley. And uh, today I'm going to be talking about the Washington Naval Conference of 1921-22. There's a number of reasons why I think it's important. It rather gets overshadowed by uh, the Treaty of Versailles and the the Paris Peace Conference. Um, But the Washington Naval Conference itself is is of huge significance to understanding the uh, complexities of interwar diplomacy and the um, slide towards war at the end of the 1930s. The conference itself were the first major arms limitation talks and the culture of um, anxiety about war, obviously, that the First World War had left behind throughout much of the world really helps to account for um, the uh, success, in a way, of the conference. Until the advent of air power and then missile technology, power was extended throughout the world by um, most major states using their navies, and particularly uh, the British Empire is the, the case in point with this one. The British Empire throughout the 19th century had been held together through um, the Royal Navy and uh, various acts of gunboat diplomacy. The Royal Navy was Britain's uh, Britain's ace card. Britain's military power didn't so much come from um, mass uh, mass use of uh, of uh, manpower and armies. The First World War is something of an aberration for the British, really, and the um, preferred policy of the British is to have a a small uh, fighting force and a kind of a colonial defence force, but um, have a large navy. That navy was stretched to its its very limits during the First World War and suffered the kind of the Pyrrhic victory of uh, Jutland, uh, losing uh, uh, losing uh, far more ships than the Germans, but forcing the um, better equipped and better run uh, German fleet uh, from the uh, the North Sea forever. As the war was ending, the advent of air power and particularly uh, naval air power was starting to make many older warships obsolete. So the um, vast collection of dreadnought battleships that the British had developed and destroyers and cruisers was becoming um, less and less a, a, a viable uh, fighting force. And the British knew this. The um, pace of uh, investment in things like aircraft carriers 
was occurring in America um, was an indicator as to who the next great naval power would be. The British were mindful of this and mindful of their bankruptcy at the end of the war. They'd gone through, um, gone from being the world's largest creditor to the world's biggest debtor at the end of the First World War. And they knew also that um, the the next arena of, of naval um, dispute would probably be the Pacific and it would probably be uh, between their old ally Japan and the USA. The treaty that the British and the Japanese had signed between themselves in 1902 had been designed really to uh, make up for um, British naval weakness in the Far East. Between 1902 and 1907, a kind of diplomatic revolution happened in Britain where she allowed herself to become tied into formal treaties first with Japan, then in, uh, in 1904 with France, and in 1907 with Russia. Um, more actually entente with uh, France and Russia uh, agreements, but it was a, a formal treaty with the Japanese in 1902. And this was because really um, the, the British were starting to feel the cold at the turn of the century, and starting to feel that they really were quite vulnerable uh, to new threats, particularly from Germany. And there was, you know, there was also a, a fear, and and for many uh, British diplomats, that perhaps even the Americans might uh, be the downfall of the British Empire yet. Um, so the vulnerability that the British found themselves in 1902 uh, caused them to sign a naval treaty with the Japanese, and the, uh, which meant that the Japanese, really, in the event of uh, a war, would be the dominant naval power in the Pacific. I would help Britain to hang on to her imperial possessions there in return for uh, favours rendered. And this treaty was coming to an end in 1922. Looking at the writing on the wall, the British thought that it would probably be unwise to continue this friendship with Japan, uh, especially if that wound up dragging the Royal Navy into a war with the United States. Um, Japan and America had uh, increasing tensions over the Pacific um, and the conference was a great way really of coming to an arrangement with the Americans. For their part the Americans had no desire to have any kind of dispute with the British and they were hoping for an end to the Anglo-Japanese Treaty, um, something they viewed as uh, quite, quite a, a historical aberration. Um, they hoped that the British would help them to put pressure on the Japanese to agree to um, a ratio uh, of naval ships. And the concession that they particularly wanted from the Japanese was a continuation of what was known as the open door policy in China. America had long looked to China as being um, the source of an immense amount of, of wealth and prosperity. America didn't look to officially colonise China. Instead, um, she saw China as a market for her products and a source of cheap raw materials. If America could have what was called the open door policy in China, then she could trade into China and use her industrial might to flood Chinese markets with manufactured goods. And, um, you know, there was a, a rather utopian belief that in some way 
um, some of the, the kind of the values of America, liberal democracy and free markets would rub off on the Chinese. The Chinese would become essentially good students of Americanness. The only power that stood in the way and who dominated the Shandong Peninsula was Japan. The Japanese had successfully managed to avoid handing back any uh, Chinese territories when from 1894 onwards and had uh, managed to uh, put their position first at the Treaty of Versailles, at the, beg your pardon, at the Paris Peace Conference. So the, the Chinese already felt a sense of utter betrayal by the Western Allies. But the Japanese also had their own axe to grind as well. At the Paris Peace Conference, the Japanese had attempted to secure a commitment to uh, racial equality, um, from, particularly from Australia and from America. The uh, rules surrounding immigration into both countries meant that the Japanese and other Asians had a, were subject to a distinct quota and there was a general sense of racism and intolerance towards Japanese, Chinese, Koreans and other Asians uh, in both Australia and in America, particularly in California where many Japanese had settled. This was something that at the Paris Peace Conference the Japanese were hoping to overturn and were unsuccessful in that, uh, in that ambition. So they had a sense, really, that they weren't being treated fairly by the West and that as a new world power, one that had been victorious over the Russians in 1905 and that had contributed to the war effort during the First World War, that they should be treated seriously and respectfully uh, as any other European power should. Both British and American popular culture was laden with all manner of pretty unpleasant racial stereotypes of the Japanese, uh, stereotypes which were going to be rather alarmingly overturned from 1941 onwards, and uh, the Japanese would be a power never to be underestimated again. Now, somewhere way back in the Explaining History podcast archives, I'd done something on imperial defence between the wars, um, particularly on the Singapore strategy. Now, um, go and listen to that, because I, I don't want to kind of rehash too many things, too many podcasts, um, but ultimately, um, between the two world wars in the 1920s and 30s, the British were acutely aware of um, gr a growing sense of insecurity surrounding their uh, eastern colonies, particularly Singapore, Malaya and Burma. And there was a anxiety about Japanese ambitions. The Washington Naval Conference, therefore, was extremely useful. And it meant that there was um, an agreement in place between Britain and the Americans as to the uh, ascendant power in the Pacific. Far better that it be the Americans than the Japanese, was the uh, view of the British. The Japanese were keen to have some kind of international recognition of their, what they called, special interests in Manchuria and Mongolia. And uh, this was perhaps as much for the, uh, the benefit of the Americans as it was for the Soviet Union, who were not invited to the conference. Uh, ultimately, the agreement that's ironed out between the two powers is called the 553 ruling, meaning that for... Roughly for every five tons of shipping, the Americans were allowed 
the British were allowed an equivalent five and the Japanese three. So uh, this resulted in just over half a million tonnes of shipping for um, both Britain and uh, America and uh, 330 or so thousand tonnes of shipping for the Japanese. Uh, again, this was seen as an immense slight, particularly in the growing uh, radical nationalist circles in Japan and those who advocated the a kind of a, a notion of pan-Asianism that Japan should become the new imperial leader in Asia um, and should be the power to extend uh, its uh, control uh, across Asia and perhaps force uh, British, French and Dutch settlers out of uh, Southeast Asia for good. Japan um, was, in the eyes of the uh, pan-Asianists, the power that should really be uh, leading and shaping Asia and uh, treating uh, the Malays, the Singaporeans, the Filipinos and the rest as the kind of younger, uh, younger brothers who needed to be um, educated in modernization in the way that Japan had uh, successfully learned from the West. Unfortunately, the conference did very little to reduce tensions, um, obviously between uh, America and Japan and between Britain and Japan, but there was still a, a fair old degree of suspicion between the British and the Americans as well. Just because both sides had decided that their interests were best suited with one another didn't mean that there was an, an, an immense and fraternal love-in throughout the 1920s and 30s. The, there were plenty in the uh, American military and naval establishments. Um, uh, Admiral King, who was the head of the uh, US Navy during the Second World War, springs to mind, who looked upon um, perfidious Albion with a great deal of suspicion and uh, were quite sure that if the British went to war, they'd be looking to drag America in to help defend uh, British colonies um, as is their uh, inimitable style. The um, British had similar suspicions of the Americans and looked upon the Americans as potential competitors for their world role. Um, the a world role really that by this point was, has, was, had long since been lost. Uh, and the, they looked upon the Americans as the um, kind of uh, Wilsonian uh, do-gooders who might possibly just end the, the idea of empire for good. The British were also mindful that uh, America was a good place to borrow money from, and so uh, were um, eager to mind their manners. One of the uh, consequences of the uh, Washington Naval Conference was that it really was the end of the kind of vast battle fleets that had been um, synonymous with the, the late 19th century and the, the kinds of fleets that had um, slugged it out at uh, Jutland. The Japanese had always banked on a, a titanic kind of naval battle in the Pacific with the Americans um, where aircraft uh, air power would be used for the first time, and the uh, Japanese um, fleets, the the Japanese battleship fleets, would then go and uh, clear up what was left, and that's really the the model for the Battle of Midway. Um, but the British, having had the experience of Jutland, 
realised that uh, this was in some ways quite desirable and that these kinds of head-on battles were not really going to um, do either side any good in the long run. Um, there would be, it was really sort of simply uh, rams butting heads, so to speak. So there was um, more no, no, no reluctance on the part of the British to come to this kind of an arrangement. Um, the Americans did continue to build battleships. The um, politics of the New Deal a decade later really rather demanded it. The uh, importance of keeping shipyards open with government contracts overrode any international commitments Roosevelt's predecessors may have made. The uh, all three powers knew that the, uh, the clever thing to do was to create smaller, lighter, more powerful ships, uh, cruisers and destroyers, to get round the uh, tonnage issue. And also there was, for the first time, a, uh, a, a limit on the amount of submarines available. And the British knew uh, quite painfully how damaging um, the submarine warfare against British merchant shipping had been during the war. The great innovation, however, would be the aircraft carrier, and many ships under construction during the time of the Washington Conference that uh, were then left in the dry dock or you know, were potentially going to be scrapped suddenly became aircraft carriers, and gradually, as air power became more sophisticated, it was it became apparent that this would be the device of the future. This would be the, the means of uh, waging long-distance wars in the future. And as we can see from the eventual outcome of the Pacific War, it's the carriers that decide it, and the uh, ability of America to uh, repair and produce more of them at a faster rate than Japan can possibly manage. Anyway, anyway, thanks very much for listening. Um, it's a particularly enjoyable topic. I'm fascinated by the Washington Naval Conference. Now, I had to pause the recording for a moment there because the buzzer went, and what arrived? Yes, the first batch of books from our good friends at Penguin who are giving us a trial review um, slot. So I'm going to be reviewing Richard Vinan's National Service, Conscription in Britain, 1945 to 63, and Alexander Watson's fascinating, I can't wait to start reading this, fascinating Ring of Steel, Germany and Austria-Hungary at War, 1914 to 1918. So check that out in a, a, a special length Explaining History review podcast next week. Thanks very much and I'll catch you soon. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Acast and Befaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi er skide trætte af alle de der podcasts, der forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.